The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Jason Momoa Scrunchy Edition. It's Wednesday, February 27th, 2019. On today's show, Spike, Olivia, the ghosts of Don Shirley and Freddie Mercury, on and on. We discuss this year's briskly presented but still controversial Oscars. And then the other two is a breakout sitcom. I think it's a breakout. It's definitely a sitcom on Comedy Central about two life-stranded siblings of a Justin Bieber-like pop star. And finally... Letterboards, Instagram, and social media spillover. Hopefully, Julia Turner will tell me what those things mean in the course of our segment. Um, joining me today is Julia Turner, who is the um, deputy managing editor of the LA Times. Julia, hey. Hello. This is a rare config. I'm actually in the Brooklyn Slate Studios in the flesh, face to face, visage à visage avec. With uh, Dana Stevens and your remote. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, one of the permutations, one of the rare permutations popped into place. We'll see how it changes the ambiance. The proton, neutron, and electron that are us, <laughs> the reconfigured. Uh, dear, I love it. And, uh, and of course, the nucleus known as Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, hey. Uh, she's Slate's film critic. Um, all right. Well, let's, that's a perfect place to, to dig into the Oscars. Where... To begin, though, well, been uh, first off, Louis, I think we should acknowledge it was a year of proliferating controversies about the ceremony itself, who would host, uh, who would be cut from the actual broadcast, uh, where it would be abbreviated, on and on. Anyway, they came and they went, finally, as they always do, with some richly deserving recipients finally breaking through, obviously Spike Lee, some upsets, some sad but inevitable winners, and some snubs. Dana, choose where you want to begin. I'm curious to know what leapt out at you. I mean, I think an interesting thing to say about the Oscars in general over the past couple of years, I guess I would say since Oscars so white, however long ago that was, but not only because of that issue, is that the Oscars have become more interesting to talk about as they've become more controversial, right? I mean, it used to be so predictable, the kind of movies that would win. Everything would seem so foreordained. You always felt like it was the old conservative white guys who were in charge. And There was sort of a sense, for me at least, as a film critic covering it every year, of like the hopeless slog through sameness. There still is a very long slog in Oscar campaigning season, and there are still a lot of uh, hidebound things and ways that the Oscars is not changing fast enough. Mm -hmm. But there are so many things that do change that it makes people more interested in talking about it. And by people, I guess I mean this small niche of people that are interested in talking about culture at all, because, of course, the viewership of the Oscars is dropping, although I believe it did better this year in ratings than it did last year, at least. Yeah, it bounced back up by 12 percent. Ah, see, that's 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 a significant bounce. After having been down 20 odd percent, I think, the year before. So right. I mean, in the general in the general long term view, it is still a declining viewership, obviously. But even all of these machinations that the Academy has tried to do to make the ceremony shorter and that then got pushed back against. Right. They were going to not present some of the tech awards, the big tech awards like cinematography. And because of a huge outcry, you know, signed by people like Martin Scorsese, you know, the entire entertainment industry rose up and said, no, we have to recognize these awards. So they put them back in. Right. They were going to do that best popular movie movie category pushback they took it out <laughs> right right they were going to have kevin art be the host pushback and uh, they took him out they were going to not perform any of the best songs except for i think uh, the lady gaga fest pushback they performed them all 
Right. So that alone, I think, made it somewhat interesting is that we were all sitting down to say, what is the Oscars? What do we want it to be? Why are we upset that it isn't the thing that it used to be when we always complained about what that thing was? You mm-hmm. know, and, uh, <laughs> and that in itself, to me, seems interesting. So I realize that I haven't even gotten to any 2019 movies or <laughs> awards yet. But um, that, to me, made this year a little bit fresher, even though the ceremony had plenty of moments that felt stale. OK, well, Dana's plane is still at 70,000 feet. So um, <laughs> <laughs> Julia, our Bring me, uh, bring me. I mean, I love Dana's plane at any altitude. That was fantastic. But, uh, but he's bailing out. Julia, bring me back to Mother Earth here. What, uh, what leapt out at you um, specifically? I'm trying to bring it down from that plane. I mean, I do, I do think that all of the changes, this kind of awkward stutter steps around this year's show, which left many in the culture discussing community of which we are charter members, uh, saying what. Uh, are also a symptom of the broader efforts of the Academy to change and to diversify its membership and to think about what it should be and to think about how it should be relevant uh, in an era where movies no longer play such a central role in culture and watching television on Sunday nights for collective events is no longer as big of an activity. Um, I I will also say, though, that the awardees themselves were a surprising and great group like just if you if you judge every awards by who actually won did you expect them to win were you rooting for them to win were you rooting desperately for them not to win it was like a very lively potpourri we had um you know the glorious victories of the two african-american two first african-americans ever to win for production design or costume design hannah beachler who won for production design for black panther was the first African-American ever to be nominated in that category at all, ever. You had over the course of the night the most individual black winners of Oscars that there have ever been in a given night. That's a new record since 2016. You had Spike Lee winning his first ever competitive Oscar and leaping uh, mm-hmm. to straddle Samuel L. Jackson. That's in my top three moments. Top three moments is the Spike Lee hug with Sam Jackson. You had, then this was sort of tragic and glorious at the same time, the total shock of Glenn Close, who arrived in like a golden statuette of a gown with encrusted with four million bugle beads and a glorious cape, uh, not winning Best Actress, as everyone had predicted, and the delightful Olivia Colman winning instead and being just charmingly flustered and British in her speech in the in the way that only British awardees can. Um You had the kind of creeping doom of a bunch of awards for Bohemian Rhapsody, including editing, which is crazy. You had among the short winners a series of female directors. I think there were female filmmakers of all of the uh, winning shorts, including a short film about menstruation and the Pixar short Bow, which is the first uh, Pixar uh, film of any kind directed entirely by a woman, um, an Asian woman, and obviously about Asian themes. And uh, then, oh, and you had you had throughout the night uh, um, Alfonso Cuaron picking up three statuettes for his work on Roma. And then finally, you had a sock dowager of a conclusion with the shock of Green Book taking best picture after all of these uh, somewhat exciting developments. Um, and I mean, just for drama, it's a good night. 
Well, however it was chosen and whether it was sadly inevitable or sort of a shocker, it sucks that it won, right? Isn't it? Well, we can get into that. I mean, I guess for me, the larger questions about the Oscars are always first, are they meaningful? And second, are they fun to watch? Like, so the actual, you know, awards themselves and then the ceremony itself. Um, so breaking those down, are they meaningful kind of has an A and B, right? A is, do the winners correspond in other words, you could get to a point where it was so meaningful. People like the Golden Globes, like who wins or who doesn't win is really trivial. I mean, you, that that in some sense, are are a shared sense of excellence about the motion picture arts would so deviate from how the award gets uh, awarded that that in some sense, who wins, who loses would be irrelevant. I don't know that we're quite there yet. There's this weird thing where like Quaron kind of like I feel like director or screenplay these these kind of still have a meritorious. Um, uh, validity to them in a way that Best Picture maybe doesn't, that Best Picture is somehow symbolic or least hated or a result of politics or or imagined politics. Um, but And then the second is, are people going to, especially among chattering types like us, going to talk about them in a way that they don't talk about, you know, even the Grammys or even the Emmys? Um, and I think that that's still sort of true, but it's like, to me, Dan, it's going in this direction of I kind of give less and less a shit every passing year, and it's starting to converge with the Golden Globes. I mean, to me, it's like scarcely more meaningful who wins these awards um, as a function not only of the lack of merit, but the a lack of a certain kind of filmmaking where excellence and commercial, uh, you know, artistic ambition and commercial performance come together adequately in a single picture, deliver something like the old Hollywood, you know, the the, the absolutely distinctive thing that Hollywood can deliver, used to be able to deliver in a, in a motion picture and the community of, of, of movie people want to reward it for that. I mean, to me, the I, I, I cannot understand how A Star is Born, which seemed to me to fall into exactly that category, got snobbed. I mean, that Dana, you're nodding your head. I'm well, just because there's something I want to say about that. And let's separate this. But not because you agree with me. Well, no, no. <laughs> no, because I have something to say about A Star is Born divorced from whether or not it should have won or whether I wanted it to win. I, I, I was on a radio show yesterday on WNYC, you know, doing like the Oscar breakdown with some other critics. And I got asked directly the question, why did Star is Born, you know, fall so quickly in the kind of um, firmament of Oscar competition? It certainly didn't fall in popularity, it did incredibly well at the box office. It has a number one hit song from the soundtrack. Other songs have charted from the movie as well. It's created all these memes. I mean, it was really well reviewed, right? It's not as if people soured on A Star is Born. It oh. just stopped being the thing that was going to be the juggernaut for the Oscars. And why is that? And I had no real answer for that, except just to say, you know, never listen to early prognostications because it's all going to change over the course of of award season. But besides that general piece of wisdom, I had no real ideas about it. And then after, of course, I had Esprit d'Escalier coming out of the (laughs) WNYC building and thought about one possible theory for it, which is that Star is Born is a melodrama. You know, in some way, it's a women's picture. I can sort of imagine there being a kind of Oscar voter who wanted there to be seriousness and heft and politics of a sort, but maybe not, you know, politics mm-hmm. that were too edgy, right. who sort of who sort of decided at a certain point, oh, as well done as Star is Born is, it's an old Hollywood property. It's only about a love affair, right? It's, it's only kind of a melodrama and right. that there was a sort of diminishment of it for that reason. Um, I, but, but I would say that, that there's a part of me that loves exactly that about that movie. Exactly. And, and I think that the high point of the Oscars in terms of just emotional, 
I think everyone would agree, just kind of emotional engagement was the performance of, of oh. Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga at the piano, which we should talk about later. The whole staging of it, the fact there was no introduction and they just came up from the audience was yeah. so old Hollywood and so glorious. Yeah, the way Hollywood. it was filmed like a movie, I almost feel like Cooper might have made the camera placement choices. And the moment that he comes around the piano and sits with her and it, you know, then, of course, creates a thousand gossip chains about, you know, whether they're actually in love, which is this hilarious meta Hollywood moment that is just glorious. Also, I want to point out that she was wearing Audrey Hepburn's diamond necklace from Breakfast at Tiffany's. Jeez. I mean, talk about old Hollywood, right? That moment was just glorious. I, dearly, I love it when we find the gooey heart of Dana Stevens while doing the show. <laughs> um, I like her theory about why Stars Born disappeared from consideration. But the flip side of that is that Green Book somehow satisfied those requirements for what? Like, you know, okay, so some huge percentage, overwhelming percentage of the Academy voters are white and male. That has descended in recent years, but is still preposterously over two thirds, I think, both white and or male um, and older. Right. It's it's aging. They're trying to make it younger as well, which is almost as important in some respects. Is there something about an older white male Academy voter who thinks they're striking a blow for social justice as they conceive it uh, and for the cause in the cause of race relations in the era of Trump by voting for Green Book. I mean, it just seems so improbable to me that it didn't seep into that consciousness that this movie really belonged. And as Mark Harris, I think I said in New York, said in, in New York magazine really belongs in 1986, not in 2018. But anyway, Julia, what do you what do you think? You know, I don't think they were voting for it knowing that it feels like a kind of racial fuck you that's of a piece with the state of the racial conversation in America 2019. The people who placed it second or third or fourth on their preferential ballot and kind of kept giving it a, a wellspring of support that led it to this result. I think that those people really liked it and thought great performances, you know, I love that scene where they were driving in the car. Also, the other one where they were in the car and then the and then the jail and they call Bobby Kennedy. Gosh, great movie. You know, like I, they, they, I don't think they were voting for it as a blow against racial progress. I think I think you know the critique on it is that it's a it's a square and dated. Uh, you know, I don't care if you're purple or green or black or brown view of racial progress and. Right. So, you know, people people who liked it might have thought like, yeah, and you know what? I do believe in racial equality and connection between races. Mm -hmm. I don't think the people who voted for Green Book thought they were, you know, voting for it because of its retrograde racial politics. That's what's so slippery about it. No, 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 no. no. But to be clear, that's not what I was saying. I just thought it was outrageous that they would vote for it as if it were not, I mean, as if it were somehow racially progressive. Yeah, but I think that's the whole point is that if you don't, get that the racial politics of Green Book are retrograde, you might think they're progressive and think, ah, you know what, this is a good year to vote for that movie about how people from all races can be friends if they hang out long enough in a car. Um, The thing I want to talk about with you guys is the show. How did you think the show worked without a host? I mean, I guess it was somewhat surprising how hard it was to notice that there was no host. You know, we did have the nice combo of 
Tina Fey, Amy Poehler and Maya Rudolph kicking off with a little routine. And really, if there had been two more spots, maybe two more moments where they popped up to crack some jokes and assure us that it would all be over one day, it would have felt like it was a hosted show. So I don't think it made a huge difference. I mean, this kind of goes back to the very first thing I was saying about how we are rethinking what the Oscars are now. It seemed like it was a big mess when Kevin Hart backed out and there wasn't going to be a host and, oh, my God, what are we going to do? And then you realize, like, the whole thing is always sort of a disorganized shambles anyway. So if you just throw up a couple people in nice clothes at the beginning to introduce the show, it sort of feels the same. Mm -hmm. That said, I mean, I I would still look forward to the institution of who's going to be chosen for Oscar host next year. And I hope they don't phase it out completely. I don't know. I feel like goodbye host. I thought this was radical and great. We did an analysis at the LA Times where we went back and watched the nine most recent Oscars plus the one in 1989 with no host and found that of, you know, the three to four hour shows for the last few years, host banter takes up something like 30 odd minutes every year. It averages out around 30. Um, And that's like a lot of show to give Jimmy Kimmel like delivering sandwiches or whatever the heck he does. (laughs) And the the thing... And the thing that I thought was really clever about this was that actually what they did was have a bunch of host bits without having a host. So the, mm-hmm. the there were a couple places where a set of comedic presenters got a little bit more time to entertain us, uh, but there was novelty in what they were doing, and it just kind of worked. I, there was one vertiginous moment after... Queen's kind of protest too much, we will rock you opening. It's like, I mean, it's the Oscars. You're not going to rock us that much. Um, (laughs) And then there was like a weird, bad montage where it felt like, oh, God, we're going to be hosted by filmic montages. This is going to be so unnerving. And then we got soothed and calmed by Tina and crew coming out. And then throughout the night, there was that great moment where Melissa McCarthy came out with Brian Tyree Henry in crazy elaborate costumes to present the the, um, production awards. Uh, and then uh, Key Michael Key descended from the ceiling and with an umbrella a la Mary Poppins, which was just sort of charming, and he was well cast in that role. And I think there was one other uh, humorous duet towards the end that got like a little bit more time. And it just worked. It moved right along. I thought it was pretty snappy. I also thought that the choices of the presenters was um, kind of inspired. Like I... I, I basically felt like every single duo that came out, I was ready to watch the buddy comedy that starred them. <laughs> like, <laughs> they, John they, Lewis and they, Amanda Sten- Stenberg. Well, well, putting them in the position of introducing Green Book was tough, but yeah, that was, um, but I, you know, I, I, I actually kind of think they pulled it off and that if a different movie had, had won the night, there would have been a cry of, of triumph. And I also think between this hostless Oscars and then the the job that Alicia Keys did hosting the Grammys where she kind of presided over it like an actual party host host rather than an MC host where she was just like, aren't we excited to be at this loving for music? I don't know. It feels like the, the man in the tux cracking jokes frantically mm-hmm. uh, right. model is going out the window and good riddance. Yeah. No, it definitely feels as though the format needs some serious refreshing for a new generation. Now, just a very quick note about speeches. I love that Olivia Colman won the award. Love her as an actress. I thought her performance was great. I thought it was the best thing about that movie. Certainly among the best performances I saw by an actor all year. Uh, I thought her speech was very charming. But I do, Dana, for me, it has gotten a little 
wrote to have a person get up there, pretend to be completely shocked. I know she may have been shocked, but but to perform shockedness and humility in part by not having a speech prepared and I, I and fake kind of fake crying like kind of like the tears are sort of in their throat the whole time like oh you're gonna this kind of you know and I I just I'm a, of the Jodie Foster school when Jodie Foster got up for the accused and delivered one of the most powerful and moral statements I've ever heard a human being give and no one thought she was arrogant for having one prepared in case she did win. I thought Spike was in the Jody uh, mold when he won for adapted screenplay. He got up. He talked about four hundred years of uh, Af- of the existence of African Americans, you know, origins in sixteen nineteen of the first stolen, kidnapped uh, Africans brought to um, the New World. Uh, what do you think? That is an interesting take on speeches. In general, I agree with you that I prefer people to have a speech of some kind or at least prepared remarks or a couple talking points. And I think it looks sort of immature and ditzy not to have that. Olivia Coleman got away with it and gave, you know, I think one of the high point speeches of the night because she has, I don't know, comic improv experience. I think yes. she was legitimately surprised. Glenn Close was I the agree. strong favorite. Agree. I mean, it was between the two of them. It would, could have been more of an upset, but it was an upset. And somehow because of her, you know, sort of delightful stage presence, she managed to pull off a very cliched thing, which is, you know, the, the disorganized speech where you just don't know who to thank. And I don't think her crying or her movedness were fake at all. Yeah, no, no, no. And, uh, I, and so I there don't... was something genuine and sparkling about that speech. In general, I agree with you that I do not love an unprepared. I sort of feel like, you know, your industry has just given you the highest recognition they can offer. And, you know, you can you can write a couple talking points on a card. Um, but I didn't judge Olivia for it in, in this case. Julia, well, how do you feel about the speech or no speech? Do you think it's a moral imperative to have m- remarks prepared? I felt like the speech game could be raised a little bit. My favorite was the hair and makeup designers who won for Vice, which was a truly extraordinary thing to make Christian Bale look like Dick Cheney. Um, you know, and that was one of the awards that was supposed to be relegated to the commercial breaks. And they were just a disaster, like a not a charmingly unprepared oh, yeah. disaster. Oh, yeah. like, it, it almost felt like a troll, like they were like, you know what, we're going to take our time on the main stage and we are going to say nothing in the wrong order at great length. <laughs> I was kind of <laughs> into it. <laughs> All right. Well, as always, interact with us on Twitter. We want to hear what you thought about the Oscars in 2019. Let's uh, Let's move forward. All right. Before we go any further, Dana, um, do we have some business? Indeed we do. First of all, we wanted to tell you about the Slate Culture Newsletter, which is a way to keep up with all of Slate's culture coverage. It's a newsletter that arrives twice a week in your email inbox to tell you about Slate's coverage of movies, TV, books, music, my reviews, of course, a little narcissistic plug there, anything that you want to follow on Slate in the world of culture. So if you're interested in subscribing to the newsletter, go to slate.com slash culture news. Secondly, in Slate Plus today, we are going to be talking about Steve's favorite topic, Oscar fashions, because we didn't get to them in our main <laughs> such segment on the Oscars. We're going to have in Slate's own Christina Cauterucci, who wrote about the runway fashion this year. I think there's a lot to say about it. I can't wait for that segment. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, you can sign up, of course, for Slate Plus, our membership program. For just $35 for your first year, you can cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and your other favorite Slate shows. And in return, you will get extended ad-free versions of those shows and many other wonderful benefits. So if you want to support the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. Okay, Stephen, back to the show. 
two siblings, millennials living their not best life in New York City, one a struggling actor, the other a couch surfing, kind of deluded, semi-deluded, ill-put-together charmer, I guess. I don't know how to describe her, but uh, pretty standard setup for a sitcom, except the catalytic catalytic event of their 13-year-old younger brother suddenly hitting it big with a viral video and song and launching him on his way to becoming another Justin Bieber. And this brings the quote-unquote other two face-to-face with what life has and has not given them. The show stars Drew Tarver and Helene or Helene. I'm seeing it. With the accent, accent. I, would say, I would say Helene. Helene, would you Hélène? say Helene? Peut-être. Okay, then if you say that, I will say it too. Helene York. Let's listen to a clip. Some in the music industry are already calling him the next big white kid. And that's why we are so lucky to have him in the studio with us today for his first ever live TV interview. Please welcome Chase Dreams and his mother, Pat. Hi, Good guys. to have you with us today. Oh, thank you so much for having us. Well, of course. So walk us through this, okay? Uh, did you always want to be a famous singer? Um, I actually never really sang before. I just made this one video for fun, and I guess lots of people liked it. Yeah, they sure, sure did. did. Yeah. So, Mom, is, does this kind of talent run in the family? You have other kids, right? Yes. His older brother, Carrie, is an actor here in um, New York City. Oh. He's really good. Wow. What kind of work does he do? Hi, I'm Carrie Dubeck, and I'm reading for the role of Man at Party Who Smells Fart. <clears throat> Great party. Thank you. Okay, great. Let's go again, but this time I think the fart is just bigger and fatter. Does that make sense? Okay. All right, uh, Julia, I'll start with you. This is, uh, this is this show's taken off a little bit. Um, how did it land with you? I would describe myself as whelmed by this show, neither over nor under. I think I'd had a fair amount of hype coming into watching it. People had said, oh, this is really good. It's one of the hot shows of the season so far. It is a good show. The premise is intriguing. The performances are fun. I enjoyed some of its themes. Um, I don't know. I, 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 I'm re- reduced to stammering. I, I liked it. I don't know. Maybe I was slightly more more whelmed than Julia was. I mean, this in a way gets us back to the Russian doll description we had a couple weeks ago where I was saying, thank God, there's finally a show that's short and compact. This show does have that going for it. Of the four and a half shows I've seen so far, uh, I would say this doesn't have that kind of compactness and it doesn't have that kind of you know thematic depth and intensity, but it does have the blessing of being short and sweet and joke dense. So you get 21 funny minutes and you're done. And mm. usually the 21 funny minutes make you want to hear 21 more funny minutes. I would say that on the scale of just good joke writing, the, the two creators are former SNL head writers and uh, and good basic characters to, to build on. This show has something going for it. It's not breaking a ton of new ground in the subject matter because mm-hmm. it is about the entertainment industry. And I have a feeling, Steve, that that's going to be something you don't like about it. Of that's... course, it is actually exploring a part of the entertainment industry right. we don't hear about right. a lot, which is, you know, YouTube tween stars. Yeah. I, and That's a very good point. Uh, and that part of it I kind of liked. I mean, to the extent that it may be rooted in what that world is actually like. But here, so I was whelmed too. I hope this doesn't make for a whelming segment that we're all three of us kind of just whelmed. But um, it's joke dense. I think it's important that it's written by two accomplished SNL writers. So they know how to set up and deliver a joke. But they know how to do that in a certain context, which is SNL, right? I mean, you know, and, and, and a sitcom is different. This one, 
presumes a lot on the kind of underlying melancholy or bittersweetness of its premise, which is, you know, what happens when flukily, but also kind of totally world historically, like your close friend or associate or relative suddenly becomes hugely famous, like virally, globally, blow up famous and everything changes for them. Um, it's, It's very built around disdain for show business which I think the show are contempt really for show business and the kinds of people that are really super invested in being in show business, especially as middlemen and women, right? So anyone who's an agent uh, or a you know kind of whatever marketing executive or whatever is treated as a kind of as a piece of shit. I mean, it, I kind of disagree with that actually. Yeah. I mean, they're treated as somewhat incompetent, bumbling fools. But I'm thinking, for example, of Richard Kind, everybody's favorite character actor. I love Richard Kind in anything, but he plays yeah. uh, the agent of the, the the brother, the older brother who we just heard auditioning for the fart commercial. I don't know what that would be a commercial for, by the way. I guess some sort of like anti anti gas medication. But the whole joke with Richard Kind's character is that he's having to multitask in the gig economy, mm-hmm. and I think you, there's actually a lot of sympathy for him. There's so the, no- the joke over and over is you hear him on the phone saying, "I'm a busy agent." I got places to go. And then he hangs up and he's, you know, delivering pizzas. But or something. all of the handlers who I mean, because the force of the satire is is, you know, directed at all of the people who begin orbiting around this kid who's going to make everyone rich. And all of those people are portrayed as shallow and stupid and self-serving. Um, so. But you know, not but not as exploitative as they could be. I mean, this show could be very close to going to a super dark place, right? About a 13-year-old boy who's right. being sexualized and kind of turned into a, right. a heartthrob. And so far, it has not gone to that place. And to the extent that there are characters that seem to be going to that place, there's a moral bulwark against them, which is the older brother and sister mm-hmm. who have a clearer right. head than, than, the, than the stage mother does. Well, I guess so. So my point is that the contempt is kind of yoked to a, of, to a kind of credulousness and actually quite intensive interest in show business that if you don't feel the satire of the contempt actually strikes you as somewhat empty. Like if you don't already feel this kind of inner gravitational pull towards fame and showbiz, like this kind of vivisection of it doesn't really land with you. And for me, Julia, what what was missing for me is I thought there were very small gestures towards the humanity of the older siblings. Like relative to the density of the joke making and relative to the kind of drippingness of the of the contempt, I thought that those were small. I, they were, I thought they were real. I thought they were pretty good. I think that the performers can can perform that, can enact that. But I just didn't. To me, it's not in any way, shape, or form the real story of these two people coming to grips with, like you know being old and kind of like older relative to their brother and sort of losers. And it's just kind of one har har after after another. I found it like kind of exhausting and I was not that psyched to watch. I watched four of them. I I just not going to watch another one. You're, you're for some reason, your whelm slipping to underwhelm is causing my contrarian streak to remind me of the things I did admire about the show. So let me let me try to articulate my state of whelm slightly more precisely. Um, the things that I think there are to admire here are a lot of dense, gnarly themes that get explored both lightly and with some sophistication that have the potential to really deepen over time. So this is a show about fame, 
This is a show about different generational relationships to fame and show business. This is also a show about grief. I won't spoil exactly why, but um, this family is dealing with death in ways that are not necessarily sane and puts the obsession with fame and publicity in kind of that darker human context of like, why do we want to be known anyway? Isn't it sort of about immortality and trying to fight the sands of time? Um, it gives it gives gravity to some of those questions. Um, there are There's a lot of plot that is driven by his sexuality, uh, but in the way where if you tell stories about more different kinds of people, you get more interesting stories and not in the way where the show is waving its hands and telling you that it's doing a very special episode and patting itself on the back. It treats uh, the character as an interesting human with interesting human conflicts that it's going to present to you. And I think some of that uh, works really well. I love how and I love how in the course of correcting me, this went from Matt to Citizen Kane. But go on. <laughs> well, no, 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 no. It's not Citizen Kane. But and then and then I think also the performances are all strong. Like I think the two older siblings are strong, and of course there's Molly Shannon as the mom. So there's the the the, the combination of that sort of target rich structure for a show with the rigor of it being actually a Comedy Central show that has to deliver jokes at an SNL pace in 21-minute increments and isn't going to just sort of flabbily turn into a 35-minute Netflix comedy. Um, There's an interesting explosive potential there. And I think the show could build and could turn into something more. Um, But it, it, for the moment, the first four still felt like uh, more potential greatness than already realized greatness. You know, the show it reminded me of just in the kind of moral universe it creates, it's not as good yet, but is You're the Worst, which we've talked about on the show, which is one of the rare shows that I kept up with after we talked about it. I think the relationship between the, the older brother and sister who are both, you know, at this moment that they feel like flops in life just as their tween brother is becoming a superstar kind of reminds me of the, the central romantic relationship in You're the Worst in that, you know, it's two people that are just making bad choice after bad choice in their own lives, but that truly love each other and care about each other and sort of very, very gradually work their way toward being slightly better people over the course of the episodes I've seen so far. Mm, okay. Well, the show is called The Other Two. Uh, we sort of split on it a little bit, but come to you know, Twitter, maybe tell us what you think of it. Okay, moving on. All right. So for our final segment, we're going to talk about Instagram and how it spills over into all of our lives and how we stage ourselves, our living environments, everything about our personalities in order to uh, appear eventually on social media. We got into this, Julia, in an odd way. There was a wonderful piece on Slate by Heather Schwedell, um, how letterboards took over America. There's an interesting relationship that she gets at in her piece between you know, social media, which is nothing if not postmodern, and nothing is postmodern if social media and Instagram isn't postmodern. And yet it has a kind of gravitational pull towards things that are pre-postmodern. Um, and in some sense, I don't know, twee's not exactly the right word. Uh, artisanal's not exactly the right word. But, but And yet somehow the perfect thing, the you know, perfect example of this is a letterboard. So why don't you talk a little bit about what a, what a letterboard is and about the wonderful uh, slate piece? Well, you guys have seen letterboards. I mean, they used to be the most efficient way for stores to put up signs. They're those uh, boards, sort of, you know, like a bulletin board type structure with little rows of felt 
grooves. Uh, and then there's little plastic letters with prongs that you can pop into them. So you can put a message and say the dish soap is on sale or, uh, you know, whatever else you might have wanted to say that, that the hamburger costs 99 cents and the cheeseburger costs one ninety nine, or or whatever else you could imagine these signs being used for. So it's an old sign technology. And as a lover of signs, new and old, uh, something I find fascinating. And the thing I love about Heather's piece is that it reports out how exactly this old sign technology became new again and something that lots of people have in their homes and on their Instagrams and use. And I think it opens up onto a larger conversation about what types of aesthetics we choose to propagate when we are sharing things on Instagram um, and what their relationship is to the technology we're using to doing that sharing. The thing I love about this this felt letterboard story is that there is essentially a couple who thought, huh, people like to post baby pictures with, you know, one month, two months, three months, whatever, and wouldn't it be cool if these felt letterboards? And they worked with one of the few remaining American letterboard manufacturers to to manufacture a letter board and set of letters that would be the appropriate size for such an activity and have made a mint and become a major revenue stream for this old American manufacturing company uh, helping people celebrate life events on Instagram, which is just sort of a comical economic after effect of the social media boom. Um, I do not have a letter board in my home. I don't have a coherent way. The, the other thing, way you see letterboards sometimes in home design magazines and contexts is people like leaving messages in their kitchen, whether it's like, bless this mess. It's the equivalent of what you might have put in a needlepoint or something. Or um, I don't know, you're supposed to leave each other notes, good luck today, Trevor type things. Um, I, 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 I don't know how my family talks to itself, but it's not that way. Nor do we... Um, post pictures of ourselves on social media. I think I'm the only one with any social media and I don't share images of my family. But um, I can sort of understand the appeal. I mean, it's very satisfying, I think, to push those prongs into the felt grooves for for one thing. Like it's just a satisfying old tactile technology. And then I think the letter board satisfies a couple things. You want novelty. So this is a technology and an image you haven't seen in this context before. Uh, it's practical. You don't have to make a punch of different signs. You have one tool you can use for many purposes. It adds a little bit of an analog frisson into your digital touting of your glorious bouncing babe. Um, so I, I think the fact that it has become popular seems sensible to me. Uh, Dana, what what do you think? Do you have or would you have a letterboard in your home? <laughs> well, the thing that I wished is that I'd gotten a letterboard when my kid was littler. It seems like a really fun tool to have when your kid is learning to read. I mean, maybe you should get one for that reason because it's just it's another form of letter blocks to rearrange or something like that. So playing with the letterboard seemed fun. But I have to say that this interview with the couple of the entrepreneurs who, you know, got the letterboard craze started because of their own baby picture just made me feel kind of depressed about Instagram. I mean, the reason I got on Instagram in the first place, it didn't appeal to me as a social media outlet. And I feel like I already spend too much time on Twitter. So why would I get on another social media program? But somebody said to me, oh, the nice thing about Instagram is that you 
it's it's is the visual element and the fact that you see what your friends see. And that's the Instagram that I like is seeing what my friends see, not seeing my friends themselves in selfies. I mean, I have nothing against the occasional selfie if you're going out and you love your outfit or whatever. But I don't really scroll through Instagram to look at pictures of people's faces that I already know. I kind of want to see the world through their eyes. The fact that there's this samifying effect that everybody's baby picture has to be, you know, with a letterboard next to it because it's the new thing or, you know, you've got to see your feet against this one tiled floor. I think one of the um, one of the pieces we linked to, or maybe it was Heather's piece itself, was talking about that about sort of Instagram ready environments in, in restaurants and museums and things like that that are coming more, becoming more popular, and the idea that we're all you know marching to the to the same place and taking the same kind of picture because it looks cool on Instagram just seems to me to kind of X out the only thing that made Instagram interesting in the first place. Another depressing thing that the couple, the entrepreneur couple says is, oh, when you're scrolling through Instagram, you need something that really catches your eye. So we try to get all the information in the image. So I guess rather than having to laboriously move your eyeballs down to the caption and see like, this is our baby Sam, he is six months old or whatever, you just see the baby and the letterboard together in the same space with all the information and that catches your eye. So you look at Sam longer. But get, I guess just the idea that, you know, you're you're desperately peddling your baby picture so more people will look at it seems kind of sad. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I'm going to be torn down now by somebody who goes to my own Instagram and says, like, well, I see a picture of your kid, blah, blah. You know, I mean, I'm not saying I'm using Instagram in some fabulously original way. But just the idea that there's a visual trend and I'm going to get in on it makes the whole thing seem like a closed silo to me that I don't want to be in anymore. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny, this segment. It's it's a couple things. I didn't really know what a what what a um letterboard was. Um I didn't know the I didn't know the thing was called a letterboard. So when it was letterboards, I was like, what's that? Google it. And of course the one plausibly hipster restaurant in Hudson, New York has its you know, specials up on a letterboard. And and it seems to me we're we're trapped in a sem- semiotic uh prison, right? Where you're either you're either going to conform to some trend on Instagram or you're going to go against it that that we're all so adept at reading what this what photographs and what images signify online now that you can't escape imputed at- intent right you're either going to do the expected thing and that's going to be interpreted in some way or you're going to do something else which is going to be interpreted relative to the dominant thing that's being done yourself is not really free to self-express itself on social media without one having already internalized all the possible responses to it yeah i i mean i have this too like i'm thinking about this and and thinking both letterboards look fun. I kind of wish I would have one in my house. And actually, someone just gave my children a light box version of this. I don't know exactly what you call it, but it's like a little light box that has four metal grooves and then little plastic transparency letters you can slide in, which is a different archaic sign technology. Um, and they had fun you know, writing themselves a happy sixth birthday message. They just turned six. I can't believe I have six-year-olds. I know. Um, You know, so on the one hand, I understand the the appeal of the technology. On the other hand, you're like, well, I don't want to put something on my feed that everyone else is putting on their feed. But Dana, even in the quest to show, I, I like that you like seeing what your friends see. I always try to post that kind of photo on Instagram, something beautiful or interesting or intriguing that I've observed rather than just pictures of myself and the people around me. And part of that's for privacy reasons and part of it's um, 
I don't know, lame. I remember editing a piece by Simon Doonan in praise of the selfie that was just like, your people want to see you. Don't think you're too good to just duck face it up and smile at your friends and show them where you are. They don't want your freaking arty sidewalk cracks. And I was like, oh my God, I literally post arty sidewalk cracks. God damn it. <laughs> you know, it's like whichever direction you go, you are going down one groove of visual cliche in the human brain. The time when I have the most agony about this actually is um, photos from airplanes. So allow me to have a slightly tangential soapbox for like... Do I have uh, do I have discretion from the judges to go on a tangential soapbox here for a minute? <laughs> yes, tangential soapbox mm-hmm. it up. The thing where you go on airplanes and the windows are all closed because everybody wants to watch what's ever on their seat back or their screen and where when you actually open the window in order to see the fucking miracle of flight and the fact that you can look at the geologic contours of the earth and all that humanity has wrought upon them in whatever uh you know glory of light time of day time of evening you happen to be in the air the notion that opening the window is considered an affront to other passengers and sometimes they will ask you to shut the window as though the natural state of the plane is that the windows should be shut and you are some kind of lunatic for wanting to look out at the glory of the world and the miracle of flight is the single gravest sign about the state of humankind that I have recently (laughs) encountered. Like what the goddamn hell? It is crazy that we can fly and it is so beautiful and glorious that we can look out onto the world and see its glories. It's the closest any of us will ever come to being astronauts, except for those of you who are astronauts, astronaut listeners, apologies for leaving you out. Um, and and I don't know exactly when this creeping trend began of like, well, you get into a plane and it's all shut. It doesn't matter what time of day you're flying or where you're going, just like the windows are down. I, 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 it is a travesty. So I always <laughs> open them and I open, you know, as far forward and backward as I can reach. Uh, and I always glare at anyone who asks me to shut it and refuse. And I love taking pictures out the plane window. I some of, I, I just, I cannot get enough of that vista. I love flying so much. I love to see what's out there. I love to see the ground. I love to fly over the weird little slubs of the Alleghenies. And I love to see the strained contours of Detroit. And I am now obsessed with going to Southeast Utah because I've flown over it enough times to wonder why the hell it is so pokey and red. But I'm aware every time I post a photo from a plane that I am just a garbage cliche. <laughs> and I don't know how to reconcile that, that like the the basicness of my visual curiosity. And also just there's a reason we like to look at babies and sunsets and and uh, vistas from planes. They're like the images that show us the miracle of life. Oh, my God, Julia, I've never loved you so much. I'm getting on a plane <laughs> to your city later this afternoon and I'm going to I'm going to live that tangential soapbox rant while on the plane and gloriously look out the window. I completely agree. Always get a window seat. Love looking out at takeoff and landing and, you know, just seeing the houses get smaller, never gets old, geological formations seen from the sky. And uh, I don't know, that that kind of photo doesn't bother me at all. It's fun. It's a way of the person telling you where they're going, right? You learn a little something about their life. Hell, I like cloud and sunset pictures if people want to show me that. That's part of the world that they're looking at right then. And honestly, to tell you the truth, I mean, pictures of people can be great too. The main reason I stay on Instagram is 
the babies, the animals, and things like, you know, sunsets and clouds seen by people whose whose eyes I would like to get behind. So I don't think you should worry about cliche at all. You're not doing duck faces, <laughs> so I'm good. All right. Well, the article is How Letterboards Took Over America by Heather Schwedell. Take, uh, check it out. It's on Slate.com. All right. Now's the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. What do you have? Stephen, this week I have a cleansing endorsement. Once in a while I like to bring these so as not to clutter up people's brains with more movies to see and more shows to watch. Just something that is a little bit simple and cleansing. Um, Sometimes those are my favorite farm animal Twitter feeds. And uh, I know that before in the past I've endorsed a really short podcast called Bird Note. That, um, that is just sort of a, a very short piece of bird song and explanation about the bird who's making it. Unlike Julia, I don't actually know anything about birds or go out and look at them through binoculars or anything like that. I just like the way they sound and look and like to think about them. So Bird Note is not my endorsement because it's one from the past. But the Bird Note people have come out with a new podcast that's even more cleansing. And uh, I'm sure Stephen will scorn the hippieishness of it, but it's really beautiful. It's called Sound Escapes. And uh, it's it features this wonderful scientist who I've heard before. I believe he was interviewed on a, on the On Being podcast named Gordon Hempton, who's an acoustic ecologist. So he's a scientist who specializes in sound and soundscapes and has spent his career traveling around the world just taping the sound in different places and lecturing about sound and, you know, what you can sort of learn from listening to a natural environment, whether it's the Amazon or the desert or all these different natural places. And the impetus for making this podcast is that Gordon Hempton is now losing his hearing. And uh, so this man who has spent his life lecturing on listening and becoming one of the world's great listeners to the sounds of the earth is losing his hearing. And they've made this podcast with him where he brings some of his recordings from around the world and talks about what you can hear in these various soundscapes. They're about 20 minutes long. I think there's seven episodes of the podcast, and I'm not sure it will continue after that. Um, But it is a very cleansing listen. If As you're walking down a busy city street, just looking at a pile of frozen garbage, it's really mm-hmm. nice to have your ears just be in the Pacific Northwest rainforest or the Amazon or someplace where you just hear things, wind sounds, animal sounds that you've never heard before. So um, Sound Escapes, the podcast from Bird Note. It's my oh, endorsement for the week. That sounds very cool. doesn't sound too hippie. You would do it? Yeah. Well, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> Let's but... not push it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Julia, what do you have? Um, I would like to endorse Emma Thompson and the letter that she wrote to Skydance Animation, the studio that just hired John Lasseter uh, after he departed Pixar and Disney um, because of accusations of misconduct, inappropriate hugging, and making an unsafe work environment for women. It was reported a couple weeks ago that she was pulling out of Skydance's animated feature, Luck, in which she was scheduled to be one of the voices. Uh, She shared with our columnist, Mary McNamara, the letter that she sent Skydance explaining her decision, which we published this morning. And uh, as Mary points out, it reminds you that one of the Oscars Emma Thompson has won is for screenwriting. The woman can write in addition to all of the other things that she's very good at doing. Um, And I would love to read just a short portion of it here. I realize that the situation, involving as it does many human beings, is complicated. However, these are the questions I would like to ask. If a man has been touching women inappropriately for decades, why would a woman want to work for him if the only reason he's not touching them inappropriately now is that it says in his contract that he must behave professionally? 
If a man has made women at his companies feel undervalued and disrespected for decades, why should the women at his new company think that any respect he shows them is anything other than an act that he's required to perform by his coach, his therapist, and his employment agreement? The message seems to be, I am learning to feel respect for women, so please be patient while I work on it. It's not easy. Much has been said about giving John Lasseter a second chance, but he is presumably being paid millions of dollars to receive that second chance. How much money are the employees at Skydance being paid to give him that second chance? If John Lasseter started his own company, then every employee would have been given the opportunity to choose whether or not to give him a second chance. But any Skydance employees who don't want to give him a second chance have to stay and be uncomfortable or lose their jobs. Shouldn't it be John Lasseter who has to lose his job if the employees don't want to give him a second chance? It goes on in that vein. uh, And I think it's actually a pretty radical moment. John Lasseter being given a big job after the accusations that came out about him at Pixar was a pretty big big step backwards for Time's Up, I think. And particularly to that point that Thompson made that bringing him in to lead an existing company and an existing team places a huge burden on the men and women on that team um, is one that has been on my mind. Like if, if John Lasseter wants to set up his own animation shingle and say, hey, I'm going to try and do this on my own, and people can decide to go work for him or not. And, you know, we would see who that turned out to be like that. Sure. I, it's He can do that. That, that. That's fine. And and he can also sincerely try to figure out, you know, whether he wants to be a different kind of person. But then the decision to bring him in to oversee a group of people does feel to me like a really bad and difficult place to put your employees in. And I just love that she is putting her money where her mouth is and refusing to work with a company that does that to its employees. So I I recommend that you read the whole thing. We'll post a link to it on our Facebook page. But um, Emma Thompson is my hero. Ah, I really want to read that letter. Love Emma Thompson as an actress, obviously, but also as a writer. She's also the star of the Mindy Kaling movie Late Night that's coming out later this year, which was one of the big Sundance movies. And she's great in that. I'm just ready for this to be the year of Emma Thompson. Oh, we got to do that movie when it comes out. Uh, yeah, I saw that letter on Twitter. Julia, it's an incredible document. Oh, my God. Um, all right. So my daughter and I do a lot of driving. My 16-year-old daughter, and she introduces me to a lot of music. My One of my favorites I've endorsed before is Girl in Red, who has a song. I think it's a new song of hers called 4 a.m. I love that song. I could listen to it over and over and over again. And in a more optimistic vein, I really love um, the Fiona Apple uh, collaboration with King Princess, which is just fucking amazing. It's so good, and the singing is so beautiful, and it's great to hear Fiona, Fiona Apple sing. It's I think she's redoing a, one of the big songs from her hit record, but in a new context that just sounds so fresh, so good. Anyway, thanks, Dana. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thanks, Steven.
You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page at slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com. We have a Twitter feed. It's at Slate Cultfest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Alex Barish. For Dana Stevens, Julie Turner, thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. Hold up. 